0: When it comes to the subject with which we're dealing this morning, with the passion, with the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's difficult, it can be difficult for us to comprehend just how much He suffered for us. We we really can't relate to it. And part of that comes from the fact that we're looking back on events from, from this side of the cross and the empty tomb. I mean, we know how the story ends and part of that is because as believers we wonder how, how anyone could torture and, and, and kill the one we know as, as the light of the world, the firstborn over all creation, the Savior of the world, our Rock and our Redeemer, the King of kings and the Lord of, of lords. How can anyone do that? And it's also difficult for us to wrap our minds around what's happening in these verses because we know Christ is the innocent one because we know that despite being tempted in every way as we are, just as we are, He never sinned. I'd ask you now to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led them away to their council, and they said, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But... From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from His own lips. Heavenly Father, we tread familiar ground today, yet we would not do so in a casual manner. We do not take for granted, Father, the grace and mercy that was shown to us by your Son, nor the suffering he endured prior to being nailed to that piece of wood. Father, today as we reflect back upon these events and what they mean to us, I pray that you will speak through your Holy Spirit to our hearts a fresh word that will encourage us and exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Having arrested Jesus after midnight, the plan that His enemies had was to let's speed up the process, to rush through a, a series of trials under the cover of darkness. They had no particular crime of which to accuse Him. There was no grand jury, no formal indictment, no arraignment. The religious, the religious rulers really had nothing except their hate-filled desire to put Jesus to death. They needed to figure out exactly how to do what they wanted to do with Jesus, and then they needed to do it quickly while it was night because they hoped to conceal their plot from the people until it was too late. And so they take him captive. John, in his gospel, tells us they first led Jesus to Annas. <clears throat> There's some bitter irony we're going to look at, and you're familiar with already throughout these scenes. But, but here, the irony is that the religious leaders are not following their own rule of law. For one thing, no meeting could occur at night. It couldn't even begin late in the day so as to avoid a a rush to judgment. If an individual was found guilty, there had to be a full day before an execution took place, just in case additional evidence might surface that would clear that person. Also, no capital crimes could be tried on the day of a feast or a Passover, excuse me, or a feast day, and this was the Passover. Despite all these measures that were put in place, To prevent injustice, Jesus' trial went on. A total travesty of justice, a mockery of their own rules of law. Now when you put this picture together, the whole picture together, there are true categories of trials. There There are the trials before the Jews and the trials before the Gentiles. Before the Jews, first Annas, then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the night, and then again Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin after daybreak, just to give some kind of semblance of legality to the people. This is followed by three phases of trials before the Gentiles, first Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate. They ramrod these six trials through fast so they can have Jesus on the cross by 9 a.m. He'll be dead by 3 p.m., ironically dying as all the Passover lambs are killed in the temple. Then He's in the garden tomb before sundown. All of this, according to their timeline, they think. But in reality... It was God's timeline from start to finish. Now, you don't have to have a doctorate in theology to understand why Jesus had to die on the cross, why He was crucified. He was crucified to make the perfect atoning sacrifice for your sins and mine. He died there, our sinless substitute, taking the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I would not have to take it, redeeming us from death, eternal death, to eternal life. We know the Scriptures that speak of His sacrifice well, in Isaiah 53, we read, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by men, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought him, him, us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And then in 1 Peter 2, He Himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So yes, we we mostly comprehend the why of the cross, the why of the crucifixion. I say mostly because, I mean, how could we ever hope to fully grasp the magnitude, the blessings? We could never hope to fully comprehend the entire scope of the agony our Savior endured. There on Calvary. Nor can we understand this side of heaven, what it means for us that God, the Son, died for us there. Still, mostly we we comprehend the why of the actual crucifixion. But there's another why question that comes to mind, which is perplexing and grievous. And it's this why, we might ask, why in His final hours did Jesus have to endure such senseless cruelty at the hands of men he's headed to Golgotha he's going to drink the full cup of God's wrath but why did he have to have all of this wanton brutality heaped upon him as well with a delay before they can get the trial started the guards who were watching Jesus began to to poke a little fun at Jesus, to have some fun with him, they they beat him, they mocked him, they spit upon him, they hurled insults as they beat him. And the the tense of the Greek verb would tell us that they beat him and kept on beating him. And then, because Jesus had this reputation as a prophet, they decided to put him to test. To the test, they blindfolded him, punched him, and taunting him and challenging him to prophesy who it was that had struck him again. We've heard this story so many times that there's a danger in our familiarity with it. There, there's a, there, these events can lose the sting of their significance because we've heard it so often. We can grow callous if we're not careful, beloved. But the cruelty that was on display here ought to turn our stomachs. How could people be this horrible to, to another human being, one who's innocent no less? Jesus had never done anything to any of them. Still, they beat him mercilessly. They taunted him mercilessly. Luke's account spares us all the details, simply telling us they said many other insulting things to him, verse 65. But it's not difficult for us to imagine the nature of the insults and the taunts they hurled at him that are not actually recorded in, in the Word. This is a story of wanton cruelty, a despicable display by wicked men enjoying the suffering of of an innocent man. And this innocent man was and is the Lamb of God. So again, why does Jesus have to suffer this indignity, this torture, before the crucifixion? I mean, isn't it bad enough that He's going to be nailed to this piece of wood, that He's going to suffer this horrible death? Does He have to be subjected to this sickening treatment beforehand? I mean, Jesus will die to pay the penalty for the sins of His people, but He's not paying that price here as He's spat upon and beaten and mocked. So why? It's easier to answer that question if we remember who's in control here. We must never fail to grasp or forget, beloved, the powerful truth that Jesus was capable of stopping the torture and humiliation with a a thought, much less with a word. We must never forget or fail to grasp that Jesus fully understood His mission on earth, that it involved the laying down of His life as a sacrifice for sin. In other words, Jesus knew it was the Father's will for Him to die. The prophet Isaiah writes, It was the will of the Father to crush Him. It was the will of God the Father, you see, to crush God the Son. In John's Gospel we read, For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Church family, we must never forget or fail to grasp just who is in control in these events. In Matthew's account of his arrest, Jesus tells us tells the disciples not to resist the men who have come to take him into custody, saying, and I'll paraphrase from the message, don't you realize that I'm able right now to call to my Father and 12 companies, more if I want them, of fighting angels would be here battle ready. But if I did that, how would the scriptures come true that say this is the way it has to be? Jesus could have stopped everything in a heartbeat, but he doesn't. Because the events of the next 24 hours must occur in order to fulfill Scripture. You see, He knew, obviously, that He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and that the Father, His Father God had, had chosen Him before the foundation of the world for this purpose. Jesus is aware that His final hours had already been laid out for Him long before. The prophets, Isaiah, in the 52nd chapter, verse 14, says His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance semblance, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So the prophecy was that after He was beaten, Christ's appearance would horrify people. He would be so disfigured from His beating, His facial features so marred that He would be unrecognizable. Jesus knew this was prophecy that He must fulfill. For his whole life, Jesus knew this day was coming. Isaiah 50, verse 6, puts these prophetic words in the mouth of our Lord I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In other words, I did my Father's will. I stood there and I took it while they beat me. I didn't flinch while they pulled out my beard. I didn't bark back when they insulted me, and I looked them right in the face when they spit at me. Christ willingly subjected Himself to the humiliation He endured. He willingly subjected Himself to the torture. So Jesus had to fulfill this, endure this ordeal to fulfill prophecy, but some might see that as kind of a circular answer. Jesus had to endure this to fulfill prophecy. Okay, but why did it have to be prophesied? And the text doesn't tell us, but let's try to think of it this way. What does it mean for us that our Savior, the Son of God, the one whom we worship and adore, the one to whom we owe all praise and glory and honor, what does it mean to us that He experienced this kind of unspeakable and cruel abuse? What, What does it mean for us that He experienced this kind of undeserved, cruel treatment from other men. Well, one thing it means is that He understands. One thing it means is that in all your life, all my life, regardless of what comes our way, we will never experience any kind, any degree of suffering that Jesus did not experience. He may not have endured the exact same adversity and trials some of us have gone through, and certainly we will never have to go through what He went through, but Jesus Knows what it means to be brutally mistreated by other people. You and I won't or can't go through anything where Jesus says, well, I don't know what that's like. Beloved, that ought to be great comfort to us. We can consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. When other people are unkind to us, when they abuse us in in small ways or big ways, when when we are treated unfairly, it can wear us down over time. It can tempt us to want to kind of throw up our hands and just wonder if God really cares about us anymore. Beloved, if that's where you are right now, I want you to take comfort in the fact that you can turn to Jesus. You can turn to Jesus and find Him to be your rock and your Redeemer in the time of your greatest distress. You can turn to Him and you won't find Him distant or indifferent. You can turn to Him and know He will hear your cry, and He will answer. You can turn to Him and know that He's able to empathize with all of your heartache and pain, and that's not just because He's omniscient, but, beloved, because He's been there. We may not always know why God allows our suffering, but we do know that we will never have to walk through it alone. A lot of people have asked or will ask, well, if God's there and He loves me, why would He let this happen to me? Maybe you've been asked that question. Maybe you've asked that question yourself. We simply don't know exactly why God allows the individual events that transpire in our lives, good as well as bad. His purpose is simply too far above us to grasp. But But isn't that, isn't what we're really asking in those times of trouble, questions like, is God good? Does God love me? Does He really love me? Does He care about me? Does, he, does, does this matter to Him at all? Do, do I matter to Him? And Jesus' suffering at the hands of the Roman soldiers and the taunts of the Jewish leaders and the, and the crowd that was assembled, in a sense, those are God's answers to those heartfelt questions. You see, beloved, God cares us so, for us so much and He loves us so much and He's so concerned for us that He sent His Son to endure this hostility from sinners. He knows. He willed it. He understands. He's been through it. God was there and He let all this happen to His Son. And sometimes that is our only answer. And it's enough. It's enough to make all the difference, both in this life and in the one to come. In fact, it doesn't only comfort us in our suffering, it transforms our response to suffering. It means we're able not only to endure hardship, but actually glorify God as we endure hardship. Look at the Apostle Peter's words on the way Christ was treated and the way he responded. It's from 1 Peter 2. when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A deeper question people often ask is, why, do God, why does God allow the innocent to suffer? I would suggest to you that it, the first thing we need to do in order to answer that question is to consider whether such a thing as an innocent one exists. According to the Bible... The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Scripture teaches us that no one is innocent in the sense of being sinless. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And man has been in rebellion ever since. Sin's effects permeate Everything and the suffering we see all around us every day is a direct result of sin. But, beloved, God didn't leave us here to suffer pointlessly. Our merciful God and Father has a perfect plan to use even our suffering to accomplish His purposes. First, He uses pain and suffering to draw us to Himself so that we will cling to Him. Jesus said, In the world, you might have a little tribulation. Is that what he said? You will have tribulation. Trials and distress are not uncommon to any of us. They're part of our lives. They're part of what it means to be human in a fallen world. And in Christ we have an anchor that holds fast in all of those storms of life that come our way. But if we never had to sail into those storms, how would we know that? It's especially in times of despair and sorrow that, that as, as we, His children, reach out to Him, we find Him there waiting to comfort us and, and carry us through it all. And so He proves His faithfulness to us and ensures that we will stay close to Him. An added benefit is that we experience, as we experience God's comfort, we are then able to comfort others in the same way. From the Message Translation, 1 Corinthians 4 reads, He comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before you know it, He brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. God uses pain and suffering to draw us to Himself so that we might cling to Him and receive comfort and in turn comfort others. And then secondly, God proves to us God proves to us that our faith is real through the suffering and pain that are just part and parcel of this life. Beloved, how we respond to suffering is directly related to the genuineness of our faith. Make no mistake about that. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we we are those who are not to shake our fists at God, or question His goodness, but to instead count it all joy, say count it all joy joy. knowing that the the trials prove that we are truly children of God blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him our father used, used his pain and suffering to draw us to himself that he might comfort us and we in turn might comfort others God proves to us that our faith is real through the suffering and pain that are just part and parcel of this life. And finally, God uses suffering to take our eyes off this world and put it on the next. The Bible over and over again exhorts us not to get caught up in the things of this world, but to look forward to the world that is to come. Beloved, I don't know if you know it or not, but this old world... And all that is in it will one day pass away. But the kingdom of God is eternal. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And as those who follow Him, we must not see the things of this life, good and bad, as the end of the story. For they are not... Even the sufferings we endure that are so terrible are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us one glorious day. Could God prevent all suffering? Of course He could. He's sovereign in all things. But the truth you and I must hold to tightly is that He assures us all things work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So even suffering, beloved, is part of the all things that God is using to accomplish His good purposes. We can know that His plan is perfect. His character is flawless. Flawless. And if you will trust Him, you will never, never be disappointed. Listen, beloved, we not only have the promise of the presence of Christ in our times of trial, we also have the pattern of Christ to guide us. When we suffer, we don't have to wonder, well, how can I honor God in this? In that verse we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, he tells us five things about Jesus' conduct when he suffered the pain and indignity of those final hours. He did not sin. He did not lie. He did not insult his persecutors. He did not threaten his persecutors. And he trusted his Father to judge all things justly. Now, obviously, Jesus' experience is unique You and I will never be called upon to suffer for the sins of His children. That's been done once and for all. Amen? But we can still follow in His steps. When we're mistreated, we should resist the temptation to to take matters into our own hands. Instead of lying or threatening or insulting in order to get the results that we want, we ought to trust that God sees all, that God knows all, and that God will bring everything to justice in His own timing. We must accept that there are limits to the justice that we can know here and now. Ultimately, things will not be set right until Jesus comes to judge the world. Some people have looked at Jesus' sufferings and concluded that He must have been a victim. His his greatest contribution to civilization was to show us how cruelly people are capable of treating other people. But another important thing for us to grasp here, beloved, is that Jesus' sufferings do not mean that He was standing there powerless and weak. Thank God, literally thank God, that's not the truth, because we don't need a victim, we need a Savior, a weak God who stands by wringing His hands idly while we decide what to do with Him and with each other is no God at all. If Jesus is only a suffering innocent, His story may move us emotionally, but it cannot ultimately help us. But Jesus is much, much more than a victim of undeserved mockery, of a sham trial. And He makes that clear to His his accusers, While on trial for his life, the the chief priest and the elders, the teachers thought they were the big shots. They thought they were the powerful ones in the room. As they gathered to cross-examine the the son of a carpenter from a two-bit backwards town, they make a terrifying group. I mean, here's the highest court in the land meeting to interrogate this Jesus of Nazareth. So in verse 67 of our text, they put the question to him directly. If you're the Christ, tell us. If if He's who He claims to be, they want Him to say so. Now, listen, make no mistake about it. They've already got the answer. They've already made up their minds about what the answer is. They're just hoping that He'll incriminate Himself. They want to condemn Jesus quickly, not search for truth carefully. And Jesus knows this. And he calls them out for speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Well, if I tell you, you won't believe, he says. It's a courtroom that puts very low value on the truth. But even so, as Jesus stands there before this religious court looking for all the world like this helpless victim, he points past that moment to a day when things will be quite different. In verse 69, he says, The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So in effect, not in effect, but in reality, he condemns himself in order to challenge their understanding and ours of who he is and what's actually going on. In Daniel chapter 7, we see the Son of Man is is this figure shrouded in mystery. We read there that the prophet writes, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But what an incredible scene. Can can you just imagine? And it means, beloved, that Jesus' claims are no less incredible. He is the all-powerful king who receives authority from the eternal God, the ancient of days, to rule over the universe. He he might be suffering as he stands before his accusers, but he will one day return to rule in power and majesty. He might be the judged one as he stands before these men, but there'll come a day when he is the judge. This is not just a suffering man. This is the ruling son of man. Now, tragically, his accusers don't pause to consider the implications of the truth that one day the one they're about to murder is the one who will ultimately decide their fate. They're looking for self-incrimination and they have it spectacularly. If there were any doubts about that they would not allow Jesus to continue drawing breath, they're gone. There's great irony in the fact that Jesus is standing before the religious leaders. Let step back for just a second and, and, and recognize how crazy this is. The religious leaders of that day are putting God Almighty on trial. They're sitting in judgment over the lawgiver and judge. And what's even more ludicrous is that they find Him guilty. Not only that, but they actually find Him guilty of blasphemy, of lying about God. We see in Scripture that when people have an up-close encounter with the majesty of God, invariably they have one response, terror. They fall down on their faces. They cry out. They hide themselves. In Luke's gospel, when one of God's angels appeared to a group of shepherds, they were terrified. So when Jesus reveals His identity to these men who are are trying to judge Him, they should bow humbly and worshipfully before Him. At the very least, they ought to be overwhelmed with a sense of terror as they realize that the one they've just been party to punching is God, the God of the universe. But their hearts are hard. They've already decided who Jesus is and who He's not, and that He must die. I mean, can can you see how how horribly ironic this scene is. It's like one of those movies where everything is the exact opposite of the way it should be. It's the miscarriage of justice for the ages. But it's also a perfect picture of the humility and the love and the grace of God. As the one through whom all things were made, the Almighty Creator allows those whom He created to treat Him in this way. You think about it. In one sense, doesn't God allow each and every one of us to pass judgment on Him? God calls us to decide what we're going to make of His Son, Jesus Christ. To decide whether He is worthy of our exclusive love and worship and devotion and obedience as He claimed, or whether He's a blasphemer and a liar as His enemies claimed. Every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, must put themselves in the place of the religious leaders and decide who they believe Christ to be. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, then to put it bluntly, you are presently casting your vote with the religious leaders of that day. And you may be doing it in a polite and well-mannered way, but that's still the way your vote goes right now. Don't be deceived by God's patience and kindness. Jesus stands before these men absorbing their mocking and their beating, but He also promises to return, not to suffer, but to bring judgment upon all those who reject Him. There's no escape, beloved. All of us will one day stand before Christ as He renders His verdict, and it's a verdict that has massive consequences for all eternity. Right now, we have the life and breath to decide whether we will worship God's Son or not. But one day, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the only question, because it will be too late for a decision at that point, is whether each of us will bow and confess in joyful celebration or in abject terror. on that day wrongs will be set right senseless cruelty will be dealt with and the suffering that that blemishes our world will end until then you and I will suffer people we love will suffer there will be suffering all around us And what will we say to those who are suffering? What will we say to ourselves? We will say that as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we are free and empowered to love those who persecute us just as Jesus did. We will say that while He suffered alone, we never have to, because we can go to Him with our cares and concerns, our fears and our tears, and find compassion and comfort in His ever-loving presence and kindness. We will say that because we know He's not ultimately a weak victim or a powerless God, but a ruling, judging, omnipotent, almighty God, we can leave justice up to Him and get on with living and loving like He has taught us in His Word and by His example. We might not know, beloved, why God allows certain situations into our lives or into anyone's life. We might not understand why He allows cruelty to go on unpunished, for now. But we know that He cares. We know that He loves us. And one day, He will make everything right.